This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is August 1st, 2019, and this is episode 149. Politicos is the BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash politicos. I'm Scott Lundabone. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, radar and photo-based speed enforcement that isn't photo radar. It's very different. Whether holding the federal election is an infringement of religious freedom, and whose job it is to actually ban conversion therapy. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to britishcolumbiatoday.ca. And a final reminder that our 150th episode live show will be next week, August 8th. Tickets are still available at politicoast150.eventbrite.com. And we have news about our guests and our beer. Our beer looks to be sponsored by Strange Fellows Brewing. They're giving us a great rate, so do come and help us drink all of the beer we've ordered. And there'll be lots of good guests, as former Green Party candidate Nicholas Sperling and pundit and just all-around awesome activist will be joining us, as well as Zoe Ferry, who's one of the many co-hosts of the Majority of BC podcast. So, should be a good time. We'll talk about BC politics, we'll talk about Canadian politics, and if you want a free pass, sign up at patreon.com slash and give us a couple bucks and you'll get that discounted ticket. But we'll see you on Thursday. So let's start off by talking about how people need to stop being self-entitled jerks. The provincial government has rolled out what... Solicitor General Mike Farnworth is not calling photo radar. He's saying it's something entirely different. It's speed enforcement tied to red light cameras at clearly marked intersections. This isn't the thing everyone hated in the 90s that probably didn't actually slow anyone down or save many lives, but did make the province a bunch of money. This is something that will probably make us a bunch of money, but maybe encourage people to slow down. Yeah, so this was announced several months ago, but the first five are now active uh, here in Vancouver, with another 30 coming by the end of the year across the province. Yeah, the province has announced that many of the red light cameras are being retrofitted with speed cameras. We don't know how fast you have to be going to trigger that. Global BC has uh, audio, it says it got from a CEO at ICBC suggesting it might be 30 over the speed limit, which would be quite fast for many of these intersections. That's like 80 plus kilometers an hour going down boundary. Yeah, in Vancouver, you can sometimes it's hard to even get up to 30 over the speed limit. So much congestion. I've been in cabs that have been doing 90 down Granville. not, Not that people don't try, but hopefully they will try a little less often with these cameras. So the difference between this and the 90s era photo radar according to the government, is these are going to be clearly marked. You'll be coming up on the intersection and see the speed and red light camera sign. So you will be aware that you have a good chance of being caught if you go through this. 
traffic laws should generally be enforceable anywhere, so like, should people really need an extra sign to be like, hey, we're really enforcing it this time, trust us, we mean it. This was the big thing I was trying to understand. I, as often a cyclist and pedestrian, and even as a fellow driver, begrudge people running red lights, pushing that extra left turn off the red light, driving excessively fast. Like everyone speeds a little bit. The average speed is probably about 10 over the speed limit everywhere in BC, sometimes a little bit more. But sometimes people are raring past even that. Like there are places coming down the hills in Burnaby where the speed limit is 50, but everyone's doing 65 because it's hard. It is physically hard to slow your vehicle down to 50, especially when people are going 70. So I get some of that. But on the other hand, I also get the let's punish people who go fast and break the rules that are clearly marked. Like ignorance is not really an excuse. You know what the speed limit is. Don't speed. I tried looking up as well some of the studies on does photo radar actually work? You know, do putting speed cameras up save lives? And the evidence is very mixed. There are some studies suggesting yes. There are other studies suggesting not really, but it makes the government a bunch of money, which fuels that cash cow criticism that the BC Liberals are really playing up right now. Because, of course, Gordon Campbell was the one who came in and got rid of photo radar in, like, three days after becoming premier. Uh, honestly, if you want to, like, do a cash cow photo traffic enforcement, just ticket the third driver that always tries to make a left on our change in yellow. Every intersection in the city, every time the light changes, it happens. You could fund the Nets 30 years of transit infrastructure in like the first month alone. The other thing I found amusing was looking back at the 2001 scrapping is it cost $6 million to stop collecting photo radar, which is interesting. Like it costs money to stop collecting money. I guess you have to take the photo radar down, get rid of the equipment, like disband a bureaucracy. Six million systems like a lot, but not going to be zero, whatever it is. Then on the other side, there's a number of defense lawyers out there who raise several other issues like it can actually be hard to challenge these tickets. And just talking to my parents who are in town from Alberta, they've gotten a number of photo radar tickets in the past. And sometimes you'll get two in a couple days but you don't realize because it takes three weeks for them to mail you the ticket. And then you haven't learned that that's where there's a photo trap and you should go slower there. Yeah, it's super annoying. I actually got a photo radar ticket when I was in the Netherlands, just outside of Rotterdam. And yeah, it's super annoying because this like letter shows up, you know, a month or two after you got the ticket. You can barely remember where it was. Like, the fact that the letter was mostly in Dutch didn't help because my <laughs> Dutch is... Yeah iffy um but like it's it's just generally annoying and then you have to go through the whole thing and like it doesn't have that immediate feedback which is probably part of why some of the studies suggest it might not be entirely effective did you pay that dutch ticket i did it's 45 oh. euros it was really annoying plus the international money transfer which like added another like i was gonna say you could just not drive in the netherlands again i do want to go back there though it's okay. a really nice country i got a photo radar ticket in hinton alberta once coming back to bc and the court date to contest it would have been in Hinton, which would have cost more to get to <laughs> than to pay the ticket. So that's how they really get you. So overall, I mean, I have trouble sympathizing with the, what was the group, Space BC or something like that, you know, the... Concerned citizens for traffic unsafety or something, who, who knows, whatever. One of those advocacy groups that's pro-driver, I have 
a lot of trouble sympathizing with them, especially in this situation where ICBC costs are going up because, in part, reckless drivers, people who are speeding significantly through intersections are a problem. And like speed is a risk factor, especially when it comes to like mortality and like we should absolutely be enforcing this. So unless there's like some particular reason why this method is problematic and I mean, we went through it a bit, but like it's not that problematic. So, yeah. And I think the province is doing a few of the other things. I think we do need to put more into education and all that. Honestly, I'd personally be happy to see all drivers retested every, you know, five, 10 years. Because the fact that you can pass a driver's license test at like 16 and then you're good until you die is weird. It just seems weird to me. I think you, I think there's testing that once you get over a certain age. Once your eyesight starts to go and some of that, but there's a long yeah, you, period Yeah, you can there. be a where, pretty bad driver for many decades before you have to get retested. I'm not saying we have to have every 5, 10 year driving, but... You know, maybe we could just ban all cars or something like that. But Even just redesign the infrastructure would help. Like, it's an expensive solution because nothing with infrastructure is cheap. But there's a good body of evidence that people drive based on how the road feels and how safe it does or does not feel to drive at a particular speed. So, ironically, making roads feel a lot more dangerous would probably actually slow the cars down quite a bit and make them safer. Well, that's what some of the road traffic calming measures in residential areas are really good for. There's an argument in some places that speed limits should be raised because like Marine Drive in South Vancouver, where the speed limit is sometimes 50, but it feels like a freeway. Oh, looking at that road is clearly designed for speeds above that. So I think those are things the province does need to explore more. And we talked last year, I believe it was, about the province bringing speed limits down actually on a bunch of highways after the previous government had brought them up, sort of playing with this, you know, should it be higher or lower? And it looked from the evidence like more deaths happened after they raised speeds. And maybe that was because there wasn't enough adjustment time, but these are really tough things to suss out. But let's try and do everything we can to make our roads safer until we all have self-driving cars. And then we have robots killing us. Unana segment two, an orthodox election. There's a federal election in 81 days, but not if a challenge being brought by a conservative candidate, Chani Ari Bain, and Jewish activist Ira Wolfish, uh, regarding the October 21st date, uh, because it conflicts with the holiday of Shemini Zeret. Sorry if I've mispronounced that, I do not speak Hebrew at all, which runs from October 20th to October 22nd, and during that time, um, observant Orthodox Jews are prohibited from performing certain activities, including voting and campaigning. And they can't even ask others to do that. So their argument is, or has been essentially, that it's a restriction on their religious freedom. Elections Canada didn't fully consult with them or find ways to accommodate this. And because their riding has more than 5,000 Orthodox Jews and the margin of victory has generally been less than that in that constituency. It's a democratic issue of whether these Jews will be able to participate in the election over the holiday. Yeah, and even if it wasn't like the could swing election, you still want to make sure everyone can vote. It would be the same sort of argument if the election was scheduled on Christmas Day and everyone was like, I'm not going to vote on Christmas Day because I'm going to be home 
opening presents and celebrating Santa, or Jesus, depending on how religious your Christmas is. So I get it. But at the same time, the federal court that ruled on this ultimately said, all right, there is a case for an infringement here. And they threw it back to Elections Canada and said, look at this again. And now Elections Canada has looked at it again and went, well, it's kind of late in the year. We've already booked a bunch of polling stations. What if we just put a bunch more effort to inform Orthodox Jews about all the other ways there are to vote? Yeah, there's advanced voting. Also, any elector can also fill out a special ballot up until the 15th of October after the rate drops. So in the rate period up to the 15th of October. So there's a bunch of ways to do it, which is probably about as good a solution as you can get. Canada is a very diverse country. If you limit it to days that no group finds particularly significant, you start to run into a pretty short window to actually hold elections. So just have widespread advanced voting. It's kind of the solution you got to go with. Yeah, the general approach of Canadian jurisprudence on these types of issues is reasonable accommodation. Is there a way to reasonably make sure that these people can still exercise their rights? You know, I think the answer is yes in this case, because of all those different opportunities that you mentioned. Some of the advanced polling days, ironically, also fall on Jewish holidays, other Jewish holidays, which makes it a bit frustrating. But like you point out, you can always go into the polling station and saying no conservative candidate can or volunteer can work on that day because the candidate is Jewish and would therefore be asking them to volunteer feels like a stretch to me. Like what if like maybe the candidate themselves can't work that day because of her faith? Fine, but other volunteers still can. And it's not that she's directly asked them. They've just volunteered their time because they want to see her elected. And so the GOTV will still happen in that riding. I guarantee that. So it is a tough one. I don't think it's as simple as just religion shouldn't play a role in this. I think Elections Canada should be paying attention to the calendar and trying to make sure that there is a minimal conflict here. But this is not a major Jewish holiday. This isn't one either of us have ever heard of, I think. And that might just be our own ignorance. I am not up on the Jewish holidays, so that's very likely. But I think it's it's a more orthodox one. It's It's not a major Jewish holiday. It's not Hanukkah. Not, or, you know, one of the major Sabbaths. So they also wanted to move the election to October 28th, one week later, which would have then put it right in conflict and overlapping with the Nunavut election that's happening on you, that day. You already feel bad for Nunavut because, you know, the federal election, it's going to completely swamp territorial politics, almost certainly. So, you know, they, they should at least have a week afterwards to do their own campaigning when all the attention isn't focused on Ottawa. Yeah. And it has to be really hard to campaign in Nunavut already. Just the sparse population, the spread. Yeah, flights up there are not cheap. And they don't have political parties, as far as I know, in Nunavut. They run off consensus government. So I believe Justin Trudeau has already said, because it's ultimately his decision when the election is held, cabinet, well, it's technically the governor general's, but on the advice of the prime minister. And so Elections Canada has offered the advice that don't change it. And Justin Trudeau seems to have accepted that because everything's barreling towards October 21st and elections aren't things that are easily moved. One of the arguments that wasn't great from Elections Canada CEO was that they'd asked every school district in Canada to take October 21st, that Monday, off as a professional development day. And 
the CEO argues, well, 13 did, therefore it would be inconveniencing to those school districts. And to me, that goes, there are a lot of school districts in Canada, and the fact only 13 took you up on that recommendation is not a vote of confidence for Elections Canada's ability to organize venues for polling stations. School districts are big organizations with their own internal inertia. Well, it's a fixed election date. They knew for years when the state would be. Well, the the, the PD day uh, is for, you know, the schools to be accessible. Like, you know, if if you're, I don't know, the Vancouver school board, you get a call from Ottawa saying, hey, would you mind rearranging your entire calendar so we can use your facilities? Yeah. Maybe you're not going to jump on that. The fact only 13 took them up on it is not a good argument that you can't move it. Right. But they'll be able to use schools in those 13 districts. And I think that includes Calgary, which would include a number of polling stations at least. So it looks like the election will still happen on October 21st. But it was interesting to see this case kind of play out. And I guess we'll have to see what, if any, effect this has on the specific vote in Eglinton Lawrence in Ontario. Well, for a third segment, conversion therapy, hot potato. After the BC Greens brought forward a bill to ban conversion therapy in British Columbia, the province, specifically Attorney General David Eby, Health Minister Adrian Dix, and West End MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert, have asked the federal government to do it for them because they say, Eh, conversion therapy is already not allowed in BC, we won't pay for it, but we think it's important to be banned and it should just be banned by the criminal code. Ottawa, why don't you do it? They passed the buck. Yeah, so it does purport to be a healthcare intervention, even though it isn't, and healthcare is one of those things that's provincially regulated. Like The provinces can step in here and just say, nope, you can't do it, and they've already said we're not paying for it or anything, and in that sense, it's banned, but... If you do conversion therapy and claim it as something else, that's fraud, so they'll yeah, go after you, you for that. Yeah, if you fraud the government's medical insurance on that, but, you know, if it's an out-of-pocket payment, it's not necessarily covered by that. On the flip side, should this necessarily be criminal? It's not every social problem should necessarily be dealt with via the criminal code. And a lot of the... BC government's current arguments rely on similar arguments to what the BC Liberals made about why gender identity and gender expression didn't need to be put in the Human Rights Act. They said, well, common law already covers this. We don't really need to expand it. Yada, yada, yada. Trans people are protected under human rights. But that misses a very strong moral argument that it means something for the government to actually stand up and say more than just yeah, existing law already protects you, stop talking, to a group that is saying, we feel we need more protection, than that government actually saying, all right, we've heard you, we will take steps to make sure you are protected. Because conversion therapy is happening in BC and across Canada. It's underground and it's hard to detect, and it's not clear that additional laws will do a lot, but it's a symbolic thing. Yeah, I suppose we should just mention what conversion therapy is, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it. It's basically therapy to make gay person not gay, which doesn't actually work. Yeah, it's efforts to try to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity, typically back to straight or the sex they were assigned at birth. And so 
I am happy in one way to see the BCNDP write this letter to the federal government, and the federal government has started talking about this issue more recently. They brought it up in the last couple of months. David Lametti, as the new attorney general, has talked about interest in banning this. Justin Trudeau's talking up the possibility of banning it. But it all came after the House of Commons rose and after the government has passed several criminal code reform bills. The cynical take on this, which is what I don't entirely disagree with, is that this would make excellent election fodder and, you know, expect Trudeau to signal his support for this during the campaign. Well, and it's, yeah, it's a way to say, I'm the progressive option. Your other option is Andrew Scheer, who thinks this is fine, who is happy to see conversion therapy happen. He's a social conservative. So yeah, I am really frustrated by the entire debate. I give a lot of credit to Andrew Weaver and the BC Greens for standing up for this in a way that is, I think, just the simplest and right solution. BC can take actions to be more clear that it's not allowed in this province, including creating specific provincial offenses that you will pay if you do this to minors. And we wouldn't be blazing new grounds on this. I think Ontario, Manitoba have already banned it provincially, and so I don't understand the reticence provincially. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be an upside for draining feet on this one. Especially for the NDP. Yeah. The Liberals, maybe they don't want to upset a social conservative base, but still talk talk, but... Not so much base as faction, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, there's... Yeah, the, the NDP coalition doesn't really seem to have any members that wouldn't be in favor of this. So yeah, it's weird. And just related to that, Research Co. had a poll out today that I think is very related because it's also Pride Week here in Vancouver. And Research Co. was looking at, you know, acceptance of LGBTQ people, of same-sex marriage, and similar things. The headline number was that 64% of Canadians support same-sex marriage, whereas 15% would go back to a civil union-type situation, and 10% would give no recognition to same-sex couples, and the rounding difference has no opinion on the issue at all. And that's on the one hand good. It's a majority, almost two-thirds support. But on the other hand, that's a surprisingly low number to me. I felt like we were into the 70-80% range for same-sex marriage in this country. I think it depends a bit how you slice the civil union versus mm-hmm. same-sex marriage. But yeah, the, I kind of figured 10% would actually be higher. Like it would be higher than 10% for just outright opposition to any form of it. So guess there's progress there. I think the one bit of the poll that was very disappointing was... They asked about uh, gay-straight alliances and whether school boards should be compelled to tell parents that their kids had joined this kind of club, this supportive group. And 45% were in favor of that. A smaller number were opposed to that and a bunch were unsure. So, like, I could see a reason why that number would be higher than just the general opposition number to uh, same-sex marriage. Because there is, like, a parental, I want to know what my kid's doing thing, which could be the case even if they in general support the concept of uh, gay-straight alliances. So like, there, there's that added wrinkle in there. Yeah, we have trouble as a society, I think, really recognizing the rights of children and teenagers as human beings, you know, as people who have rights to privacy and secrecy and things like, like that. And, and parents generally have a hard time often letting their kids grow up and do their own thing a bit. So there's that too. The poll in general, to me, points that there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of promoting acceptance of people of different sexual orientations, gender identities, and it's really why pride is still important. 
So go support Pride this weekend or the Dyke March or all the other events that are going on. Moving on to Quit Takes. Uh, it was announced pretty much right before we started recording that Ben Stewart, MLA for Kelowna West, will be leaving the BC Liberal Caucus and sitting as an independent where Elections BC reviews a pending issue around him. So this is still kind of breaking as recording. There's a suggestion out there, but I haven't seen it verified that this may be related to some donation limits being exceeded. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. It's hard to say right off very, you know, the only information we have out there, which is a post from Bob Mackin. So take it with a grain of salt. And I will say this, to his credit, he is the person who will go through every uh, disclosure record and find discrepancies. And that's what he seems to have found in this case that maybe donated twice the limit or some, you know, some amount over the $1,200 limit to the BC Liberal Party, but not a like absurd, he was clearly trying to flaunt the law. I'm saying it might have been an honest mistake. I think we'll find out probably in a few weeks, a few months, he's still going to be sitting as an, an MLA. He will probably still be voting very staunchly with his liberal colleagues. Yeah, the, the impact of this on the provincial scene is going to be pretty minor. Absolute worst case scenario, there's a bunch of stuff here and a, and a scandal brews up and, oh, he resigns and then the liberals win Kelowna West as they always do. And I mean, we're right back to where we are. Just the nameplates get changed out. Yeah, it's important to remember he was twice an MLA there. Then he resigned so Christy Clark could run in the seat. In, after she lost the election, she won. Westminster systems are weird. And then after Christy Clark resigned the seat, after the election, she won but lost. <laughs> and Stewart came back. So he's been around the block. Maybe it's an honest mistake. Maybe it was nefarious. In either case, we'll find out once Elections BC gets back. But turning to the provincial government's assortment of press releases that have been coming out over the past week, I think the one we were probably both most interested in was BC Transit has announced it's going fully electric by 2040, meaning every bus in the province outside of Metro Vancouver is going to be swapped out for a battery-powered bus of some sort, which is kind of cool. Yeah, so BC Transit, which basically does all the transit in the province except for what Translint's responsible for in Metro Vancouver, and I think that covers 130 communities has announced that starting in 2021, uh, they'll be starting to buy electric-only buses, and that by 2040, their entire fleet uh, is going to be electric, which astute listeners will remember us of the time the provincial government is just banning internal combustion engines being purchased in the province. So this is better than that, though. Yes. Because this is saying not only will they stop buying new gas vehicles after that point, they're going to stop buying gas vehicles as effectively now yeah they're going to buy 1200 battery powered buses to replace existing buses and they're going to buy another 350 buses to also help expand the fleet so overall they're estimating this will help bring down the 65,000 tons of greenhouse gases bc transit emits per year they figure they can cut that by 40 percent by 2030 and i'm assuming by 100 percent by 2040 i mean are we talking life cycle versus 
like operational emissions. That's what I was kind of confused by their numbers, like, but you still emit some carbon just building electric buses. So it's going to be fairly minimal. In the and I'm pretty sure the buses that they're taking off the roads, they'll just sell to some other jurisdiction. Well, to drive around for. I'm a not bit. even sure if they're going to do that. Like buses don't last that long. Like they're constantly on the road. That often in somewhat rough service conditions. I think a bus lasts 10 to 20 years, somewhere in that range. So I think a lot of this is just the buses we were going to replace anyway, we were buying electric, and we may accelerate some other phase-outs. Well, still good news. It'll be cool to see electric buses across the province. It sounds like from some of the road tests in Victoria that people have enjoyed them. They're quiet, they're smooth. Hopefully they're not too quiet as a pedestrian slash cyclist many of the times you still want to hear things moving around but well, we're the electric trolley buses here and like you, you made a little noise from just from yeah. the noise on the wires but put some they're... baseball cards in the spokes and they'll make some noise <laughs> but yeah they're still keeping horns on them good news from bc transit well, moving on the provincial government has also announced that starting in september 1st international students will have to pay msp now msp the medical service premiums basically being phased out across the entire province but with the exception of uh, international students who are covered by our healthcare system, but I guess don't pay into taxes quite the same way as other residents of the province often do. So this is, I guess, a top up more or less. And so, yeah, and it's one way to approach it. Leave both Ontario and Quebec just don't cover international students and they have to buy private insurance. So, I don't know, the thirty-seven fifty a month that's going to be charged going forward is probably a good deal still it does jump to 75 dollars a month in january which will probably still be cheaper for an international student than a fully private insurance plan of equivalent quality will be at the same time it's a weight on the back of students so the the tricky bit of the politics here is international students have been used in british columbia for a long time as somewhat of a cash cow for the education system because they charge them a much higher rate of tuition both for post-secondary or for primary secondary education that some school districts use them as a way to essentially get extra money from the province or directly from the students and so i see how this is putting weight on the back of students who are in a weird situation the whole thing makes me uncomfortable like i get the logic of this I'm not saying this is a bad policy. I just think there's a broader issue with how BC has kind of approached international students for a long way that we've not ever really dealt with. And that's not to say I don't think we should have international students. I think there's a value to that, and it's a good way to promote cultural exchange. But we've also done it in a very, like, weird, not quite exploitative, but almost made it only the wealthiest of students can come here. And that's not necessarily... A cultural exchange situation that's just a we're trying to make money off this so yeah the policy itself is fine the broader question is out there but while we're talking about the ministry of health they are in deeper trouble from the auditor general of bc who's dropped a new report about drinking water in the province this report points out that both the ministry of health and provincial health officer have really just been dropping the ball for quite a while on making sure that the drinking water, especially in smaller communities across the province, is safe and clean, which feels like a base minimum job of 
those agencies. Yeah, so in particular focus are these small water systems, which are systems that service less than 500 people over a 24-hour period. So these are small systems. The you know system here in Metro Vancouver that basically provides water for what half the population of the province. You know, you have a lot of like professional engineers, technicians who spend a lot of time making sure the water is high quality, the system's well maintained and everything. But when you get into these smaller systems, it's a lot harder just to well support the infrastructure that's needed to do that. And this is where the province has been falling down a bit. Well, and the report points out there's a Drinking Water Protection Act that mandates annual reports on what the Ministry of Health and Provincial Health Officer are doing to make sure our drinking water across the province is clean, safe, and healthy. And that ministry and agency have been failing to deliver those reports. The ministry has apparently just not been doing any reports or updates, and the health officer has sort of issued sporadic reports over the years about whether they're doing anything. On top of that, both agencies have kind of slowly dissolved councils and committees that were set up to look after drinking water, which is also terrifying a bit. A lot of the talk around Canada has been about drinking water on reserves, and this report doesn't even deal with that because the reserve water is a federal jurisdiction. This is just essentially the non-reserve drinking water system, which apparently it doesn't point out specifically that things are have gone wrong, but just that there's a lot of risk because no one's properly yeah. looking after it. Yeah, the f- about 4,800 known water distribution systems in the province, you know, 90% of them are these small ones. And if you aren't keeping track of it, there's a lot of potential failure points. Just with that many alone, you know, one thing to go wrong in one place, and you, if there's no reporting mechanism, it's hard to get the word out, and there's a lot of risk there. So there's five important recommendations for the ministry and three more for the provincial health officer to take on, basically relating to promoting accountability and starting to look after our drinking water. So hopefully the government takes those seriously and make sure everyone has safe water. It's not too much to ask. But if you need medicine to deal with the effects of a tainted drinking water situation, you may be in for a bit of competition for it as the U.S. government has announced plans to lift the ban on Americans buying Canadian drugs. So this is one of those random Trump policies that seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, it's been an idea that's floated around in American politics forever, but just a weird thing for a Republican to just do off suddenly. Well, and for a while, this has been a call from Democratic politicians. Bernie Sanders has been really about this at a like basic level, like a first step towards better medicine. He wants Americans to be able to buy drugs from Canada to get them cheaper, which to them sounds great. But to me is like, fuck off, because that's how you break every system. The reason American drugs are so bad is because they're not bulk buying. And we have some effort towards like making sure they're bulk bought drugs and that we keep prescription costs down a bit. And we're trying to have finally a national conversation about a pharmacare plan. But if you bring American consumers in there, it destroys our ability to do that effectively as a country because we're planning for 35 million people to have drugs and suddenly there's 350 more who say me too. Yeah, like at some point I suppose a new equilibrium could be reached where 
like you're just buying a lot more so you could in theory get even lower prices but there would be a lot of disruption between now and then and then we're doing the americans job for them like uh, yeah. fix your own damn health problems i'll <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and also this is like the one thing Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump like see as good free trade, I guess, which is also weird. So, like, I, uh, it. This is a very frustrating policy to me because it's like the solution to their problems isn't to break another country's. I mean, maybe in the short term, but the risk here is massive drug shortages in our market because Americans have bought it out, and that just hurts but... everyone. Suppose there's always the option of us being the one to implement the ban rather than the American. And that's where the federal government has a role. But right now, the federal health minister has said they're just monitoring the situation and making sure Canada's drug supply is still sufficient and a reasonable price. But we don't have a national pharmacare plan and yet. And, you know, we're still at risk of the U.S. coming in and exploiting it. So while we have different approaches to buying drugs, I think that's a pretty good reason for a trade barrier or else we need to entirely get rid of it and then we just as a two country or even nafta level start negotiating against pharma companies but while our two countries are running different healthcare plans we need to treat them as different i'm not trying to get nationalistic here but i just don't want to like have our country get screwed by this and i don't see a different outcome i mean you could like put in a rebate system like jack the prices up put in a rebate system for canadians so like we could make it needlessly complex well i'm just saying like if the americans want to buy drugs here there's a potential cash cow here for us and plus if you raise the price enough it gets less attractive you know you put in a rebate system so canadians don't get screwed like there's a way to do this is all i'm saying you just charge the americans a lot more money for the cheap drugs they're coming up here to get is there a way to create a supply management-esque system <laughs> to distribute <laughs> no, we're not drugs in Canada? Well, finally, the last thing I want you all, dear listeners, to do over the weekend is take the Vancouver Suns BC Day quiz. Uh, we both took this in the last couple of days. I scored 77%. I did not know the number of Johns who've been Premier. I also BC. got that one wrong. That's not a hint at the answer, but uh, what was your percentage? 93 so you got one question wrong, right? Two. Two. Okay. So yeah, I got the number of John's question wrong and the which one of these is not a top three largest municipality, I think, top four. Oh. Whatever the municipality population one oh. was, I got wrong, which I'm annoyed about because like city stuff is my thing. I should know that one. I know. I felt like that was an easy question. Yeah. Well, that that's because I don't know. I could not recall. What, you know what? I'm not going to tell you, say that reason because it's going to give our listeners a hint. When you see this post it on Twitter and Facebook. Tell us in the comments or in a reply what percentage you got. Or if you're a patron, tell us in our Slack. We want to know what percentage you got. And we'll talk about answers, not on next week's show, but maybe just on social media. And that has been Politro's fine list to everything we talked about at politro's.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and most things. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel and live show tickets at patreon.com slash and if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send to us. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Shun Plotnikov. And once again, a reminder, uh, get your tickets at politicos150.eventbrite.com. Hope to see you all next week. Thanks for listening.